You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Slightly late for The Naked Scientist. Sorry about that, Chris. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Okay, let's start with this. Major advances in multiple sclerosis treatment. Tell us about that. Well, multiple sclerosis is an extremely common and debilitating nerve condition. And it occurs when the immune system attacks a structure in the brain called the myelin sheath. Around all of the nerve cells that connect one part of the nervous system to another are cells called oligodendrocytes, and they wrap themselves around nerve fibers, producing this fatty material called myelin, which behaves a bit like the insulator on an electrical cable. And for some reason that we really don't understand, and in some people, the immune system starts to attack this myelin and breaks down patches of it. And this, of course, interrupts the connections between one region of the nervous system and another, and this is what produces disability for patients. Now, most of the treatments that get used for multiple sclerosis, which can progress, causing more and more damage as time goes on, leaving people more and more disabled, most of those treatments involve just turning off the immune system or or immunosuppressing people. And this can work up to a point, but it doesn't do anything to repair the damage that's already been done or reverse some of the symptoms. But now there's a paper that's come out in the journal Nature, and this is by Paul Tizar, who's a researcher at Case Western Reserve University. And what he's shown is that by screening through more than 700 drugs that are commonly used already in medicine, he was able to find drugs that have as a side effect the ability to trigger the brain to repair itself in people with MS or potentially in people with MS. What they did was to take cells from the brain, stem cells that can make these myelin-producing cells and just incubate them in the dish with small amounts of these different everyday drugs. And he found at least 22 compounds that could boost the activity of these stem cells and two drugs, one which was a steroid drug which you rub on dermatitis called clobetazole and another one which you would rub on your athlete's foot. Basically, it treats skin fungal infections and that's myconazole. Both of those were powerfully active at stimulating these stem cells. And what they then did was to take mice with the rodent equivalent of multiple sclerosis and give them these agents. And they found that the mice showed a a significant improvement in their clinical symptoms when they were given these agents, which appear to be able to trigger the brain to activate its stem cells. And those stem cells then go to damaged parts of the nervous system, make new myelin and reduce the symptoms. And so they're now looking at how they can actually get this into a clinical trial. And the benefit is because these are drugs that are already in, in use in humans, part of the regulatory hurdle is already overcome. So it should be a much faster process of getting a form of these drugs that can be administered safely for people with MS and help their nervous system to repair itself. Chris, I want to ask you, what actually happens when someone hallucinates? Never had the experience myself, or maybe I don't know, I was hallucinating, I don't know. But what is there science behind it? Well, uh, hallucination is where the brain becomes active in a part of the brain which does a certain job. Because your brain, although it looks like a sort of giant cauliflower mass, if you were to look at which bits of the brain become active when you do certain tasks, you would find that there are discrete regions which are devoted to seeing, there are regions devoted to hearing, there are regions devoted to feeling. If you stimulate those areas and put activity into them from an external source, patients will describe experiencing sensations corresponding to what that patch of the brain does. So if, for instance, you send electricity into the part of the brain that decodes sensation from your hand, then patients will say, oh, I can feel 
pins and needles in my fingers. Or if you stimulate the visual areas of the brain, they'll say they can see spots of light and things like that. So when someone has a hallucination, what appears to be happening is that the region of the brain in the modality that they're experiencing, so with the visual area or the sensory area, something triggers that part of the brain to play out, almost like putting a CD into the drive and hitting play. Mm. Uh, they play out some kind of neurological program which triggers a sensation or an experience, and it's not real, but because the brain is creating that experience, it feels very real. And so it can be quite frightening for people because they don't understand where these uh, sensations and symptoms are, are coming from. Right, let's go to Indran in Laudium. You've got a question for the Naked Scientist. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Yes. Uh, Chris, uh, I'd like to know where does m- mosquitoes go to during the winter time? <laughs> Are you missing yeah, them, Indran? Um, <laughs> not my biggest friend, mosquito, although I'm... I'm one of the lucky ones who they seem to find relatively unappealing. My wife, on the other hand, mosquitoes love her, so she's great to go out with because actually <laughs> I don't have to put on mosquito repellent because <laughs> they all go after her. She sort of draws them all away. But mosquitoes hibernate. Um, they find a shel- an area to shelter in and they f- sort of under leaves, holes in trees, in your house, in your roof of your house, and they'll go in there and they hang upside down and they sit there and their metabolic rate goes right down because the temperature is really low and they've usually stored some energy during the summer certain species of mosquito perfectly capable of of putting on weight in the same way that we do and then they slowly burn off these fat stores uh, turning them back into sugars that they metabolize and then when the weather warms up they come out and they're ready to go and they go and find a pond and they find a, a mosquito of the opposite sex and they mate and they mate lots of new mosquitoes right and jimmy in robertham hi jimmy Hi, uh, good morning, Clubby. Um, just a question from the Naked Scientist. Um, I recently stumbled upon, purely by accident, I was looking for an alternative treatment for my late dad who passed away from cancer. He was obviously doing chemotherapy, which is a horrible thing. I came across something called phototherapy, photolight therapy. And basically, the way it works, apparently, is they administer and put it into your bloodstream chlorophyll. Um, the sap from uh, plants and leaves. And what they do is when that chlorophyll goes through your bloodstream, then they put you into something that looks like a, a very powerful sunbed. And the minute the light penetrates your, 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 your body, it's like holding a torch and shining it through your thumb. You know, you get that light coming through your finger. Now, as soon as the light hits the chlorophyll, it activates almost like, I don't know if it's the right word, a process where it stimulates the white cells. Now, the white cells is what attacks and kills the cancer cells without destroying and harming your body, unlike the chemotherapy. Um, Is this true? Is there such a thing? And is it effective? And does a naked scientist know about this? And is it an alternative that they would look at um, apart from doing chemo? Because obviously there's there's, uh, a company that does do it, a medical company that does it, I think, in Singapore, Malaysia, when I inquired. Um, Does he know about anything of that? Thanks. Okay. Yeah, the the whole field of phototherapy is is an emerging area, and the the basic premise is as you said, you give to a person a molecule. It, it wouldn't necessarily be chlorophyll, but it's something similar because of the way chlorophyll works to absorb energy from light. But you're giving a molecule which absorbs energy in light of a certain color or wavelength, 
And when the light is absorbed by that molecule, it causes the molecule to undergo a chemical reconfiguration, which leads to it spitting out a very reactive, usually a very reactive form of oxygen called singlet oxygen. And this oxygen pounces on structures nearby and rips them to pieces because it's got a hunger to find another electron. And this often, if you do this in the context of a tumour, you're going to produce this singlet oxygen in the presence of the tumour and it will therefore destroy tumour cells locally. And so what people are now doing is working out how to produce molecules that will concentrate and activate in response to light in this way that you can inject safely. They won't harm the body, but they will be taken up preferentially into the tumour tissue. Once you've got a tumour full of them, you can shine light at the tumour, and that might be either by using a telescope that you could thread inside the body somewhere to to find the tumour, or if it's a skin tumour, you could shine light directly onto it. The light is chosen to be of a colour that will penetrate into the tissue sufficiently well that it will then find the tumour, hit the molecules that have aggregated there and activate them, producing these chemicals that will then destroy the cancer. But one spin-off of doing this is that if you damage the cancer in this way, often what you can do is also to trigger the immune system into action because cancers seem to be able to suppress the immune system and they stop the immune system destroying the cancer tissue when they normally would do. So if you trigger inflammation in this way and damage the cancer tissue with this phototherapy, often you can then get a secondary immune response against those cancer cells and that's good because if the cancer has spread to other parts of the body, then the immune system can go to those other parts of the body and attack the cancer there too. Now, this treatment is in its infancy, and it's certainly not curing cancer right this second, but it's certainly something people are working on, and and they're getting um, reasonable results. So it's certainly one to watch. We go from you to uh, Tina. Tina in Edenvale. Good morning. Good morning. Chris, I'd like to find out more about that treatment for MS. Obviously, it would be able to be used for people with Guillain-Barr syndrome as well. But at what point in the, in the disease, right at the very beginning or when it's progressed for a few years? Hello, Tina. Well, first of all, we'd better explain what we mean by this. So mm-hmm. MS, multiple sclerosis, is a condition involving the central nervous system, and that means the brain and the spinal cord. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a similar condition, but one which involves the peripheral nervous system. These are the nerves that have come out of the spinal cord and are running through our tissues to supply our arms, legs and body. In both cases, there is loss of this myelin coating, but the cells that do the myelin coating are different in the central nervous system from the peripheral nervous system. So these researchers haven't looked at Guillain-Barre syndrome. They've only looked at multiple sclerosis, which involves myelin being produced by a different kind of cell. So I wouldn't be able to say for sure that what works in the brain is going to have the same effect in the peripheral nervous system. And I don't think it would because the stem cells that it's triggering in the brain are a very discrete group of stem cells that make this myelin. They're not the same cells that make it in the periphery and therefore one wouldn't expect to have those stem cells there. You wouldn't expect the drugs to work in quite the same way. But to answer your other question, which is when would you give this therapy? Well, one of the problems with multiple sclerosis is that people, even when the disease burns out and stops in those people, they are left with a residual deficit because if you've got a patch of the brain where 
myelin has been broken down, then that part of the brain will be poorly connected or there'll be poor integrity of connections running through that area. And so if you could get the brain's own stem cells to remyelinate, to put new oligodendrocytes that can lay down this myelin coating around the cells, the nerve fibers that have been affected, you should get some recovery. And that's what they would do. They're aiming to get the immune response under control and then promote the brain to repair itself, which should help to remove some of the disability borne by these people. Let's go to uh, Ramezi. Ramezi in Secunda. Good morning. Good morning, really. Mm. Yes. Just a quick one. I just want to find out from uh, the stand you. The, the American doctor that came up with this quantum vision system that he claims that can restore your vision to 2020. Which I just found out that came with this true. This is a book that is apparently selling. So I just want to know before I go and buy it, is it true or is it just a scam? And just a second question there. Okay, just hold on. Let's deal with the, the line was not so clear, Chris. I, I didn't hear that. Do you get it? Uh, no, I couldn't really understand yeah. the, the question. Ramitz, maybe go through that again, just slower and loudly, and let's just stick to that one question. We won't have time. Just start again, okay, please. Great. We couldn't hear you, yeah? Great. The quantum vision system, there's an American um, uh, optometry that's claiming that you can actually get back your vision to 2020, and he's uh, selling a book on that. So just before I buy the book, I trying to know if that's true or is that a scam, because I'm actually almost qualified as a main. Uh, I'm using um, the sort of glasses, so uh, that would be interesting. So instead of glasses, doing this therapy, and uh, he's claiming he can get what twenty twenty vision back using. Uh, yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay. Okay. Well, the first thing I'd say is I'd be very dubious of anything that where a person is just trying to sell you something that isn't clinically uh, regulated and clinically proven. If this is valid and reliable there will be a proper clinical trial which has been done according to proper clinical trial guidelines in in what we call a blind way Um, that's slightly ironic under the circumstances isn't it but it's a properly regulated trial and they should be able to show you the data supporting uh, the fact that that there's evidence that they have a significant outcome Um, as I say I'd be very skeptical of things that you can just buy over the counter which can have such a dramatic effect because if they worked so well then everyone would be doing this and no one would need glasses when you have a, a visual problem the reason you often need to wear glasses is because the focusing thing the cornea and the lens in the eye are not capable of bringing the light to a fine focal point on the back of the eye where the retina is that converts light waves into brain waves and so you need to have a lens in front of the eye your glasses in order to change the path of the light so that when it goes through the focusing system on the front of your eye it does then come to a point on the back of the eye now there are some systems where you can wear contact lens type structures that deform the front of the eye a little bit and this can have an effect there are obviously going to be health implications associated with putting things into your eye or deforming the front of your eye and at the same time that deformation is only temporary so you have to keep up with the therapies that that i've read about that where people do this in order to to keep the effect um other longer term possibilities include laser vision therapy but this is much more expensive it's not suitable for everybody but the effects can be excellent in some people yvonne in monument park good morning good morning i just want to know why when you get old you cannot whistle anymore Oh, is that so? (laughs) Well, I thought I was the only one, and yesterday my friend told me she can't whistle anymore either. And we both just around about 80. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Yvonne. Well, I'm I'm very sorry, and you've taught me something, because I'd never really thought about it, but now I I know, and I will quote that as a fact in my radio programs. But 
The, the likely answer is that in the same way that when you hear a person's voice on the radio, one can make a pretty good estimation of how old someone is by listening to them. Why do they sound different? Well, as we, as we age, obviously the shapes of our bodies change a little bit, but the elasticity, the springiness of the tissue changes a little bit and the strength of the muscles in all the different parts of our body changes a little bit and when you whistle you're using the muscles of your face to bring your lips to a tight pursed uh, aperture against which you blow to make the whistling sound you've got to control the flow of air coming up and uh, also you're reliant on the uh, muscles in your face to be able to form the right shapes of your mouth and your tongue to produce a whistling sound as you get older it's much harder to use all those tissues and coordinate the movements of those tissues just because as things become floppier and saggier because that's what happens to all of us I think that's probably why your friend and, and maybe even yourself are describing this issue with it. it's more difficult to whistle as you're older yeah, Thank you very much Yvonne in Monument, uh, in Monument Park Who do you want to whistle at? Okay, she's gone. She's gone. You, by the sound of it, <laughs> I've got an email here from a mom who's asking a question on behalf of her eight-year-old daughter who wants to know why is it that she coughs every time she eats something like nuts or popcorn. I remember we had a popcorn question when you, you were here, uh, but wants to know why is it that certain foods are likely to get stuck in your throat? That's what the little girl says. Well... Because our throat is so critical for enabling us to eat and drink, but more importantly, breathe from a moment-to-moment basis because you've got a shared tube at the back of your throat and that shared tube then splits into two, your food pipe or esophagus that goes down to your stomach and then the um, trachea that comes out of the front and then goes down the front of your neck and into your lungs. Because that there's that shared aperture the body has a lot of reflexes designed to to protect that area from anything getting stuck. And you have something called the cough reflex, and there's a nerve called the internal laryngeal nerve, which comes down out of your brain stem, and it supplies the sensation to that part of your food pipe and throat. And if it gets stimulated, the brain interprets this as there's something stuck or there's something that could be stuck, and it triggers a circuit that makes you cough and nuts and popcorn and things like that which contain sort of powdery stuff around the surface or they're they're quite sticky because they're quite protein and fat rich they can get stuck in various places and trigger this nerve coughing sensation designed to expel air very quickly up your airway and therefore clear an obstruction so that's that could be what's happening but if this is something that happens every time this person eats nuts and it's also associated with a sort of tight sensation in the throat that's probably worthy of getting investigated because there may be an allergy there which is causing the throat to become tight because that can happen in some people who have a nut allergy so it's worth getting that checked if it's something that happens all the time mm-hmm. well chris have a lovely weekend thanks indeed for your time chat next week thank you Reedy, and thanks everyone see you soon Bye bye